0: Hello everybody and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is New York Times best selling author, Greg Braden. Welcome, Greg. Greg, it's such a delight to have you with us.
1: Miriam, I am so happy to be with you on this program today, and I am so honored to be in such good company with so many amazing and brilliant people sharing a a powerful message of hope and possibility. And I'm I just can't wait to get in this material today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can't either. And I can't imagine that there are too many listeners who don't know about you. But just in case, let me outline your background. Greg is an internationally renowned pioneer in bridging science and spirituality. Following a successful career as a computer geologist for Phillips Petroleum during the 1970s energy crisis, he worked as a senior computer systems designer with Martin Marietta during the last years of the Cold War. In 1991, he became the first technical operations manager for Cisco Systems, where he led the development of the global support team, assuring the reliability of the Internet in its early days. But his passion lay elsewhere. For over 22 years, Greg has traveled the world to high mountain villages and remote monasteries to search forgotten texts, hoping to uncover their timeless secrets. Greg's books have been published in 30 countries, and their common theme is that the key to our future lies in understanding the wisdom of our past. And that really shows in all your work, Greg, from the Isaiah Effect and the Divine Matrix to the spontaneous healing of belief and fractal time. Is there a reason that these books were released in this order?
1: Wow, what a really beautiful question and a perfect segue into everything we'll do today. You know, I have to tell you, you're the first person that's ever asked me that question. And (laughs) the answer is is absolutely yes. When when I was in the corporations uh, in the 70s and, and in the 80s, uh, and including the three corporations that you, you mentioned in the, the uh, introduction. Although each job was very different, there was a common theme that ran through all of them, and that theme is that each of those corporations during that particular time in our history were addressing crises that were unfolding in our, our world. The the energy crisis of the 70s, the Cold War and the nuclear crisis of the 80s, and the information sharing crisis uh, that really became apparent during the first Gulf War in in, the, in 1990, uh, the crises, the fact of the crises, and the way that we think about our relationship to ourselves, to one another, to our world, and the way we solve our problems, while those factors are important to us today, the way that we go about doing all those things, the thinking, actually stems back a very long time ago, Miriam. And and this is the reason for me to, to look into our, our past. If anyone's listening to this program today, or, or everyone who is listening to this program today, then they know that uh, our, the way we think of ourselves has been powerfully influenced uh, largely through the beliefs of science. And, uh, and science is a relatively young language. It's only about 300 years old. And my thinking was that before 300 years ago, people of the world had had another kind of understanding, a, a deeply spiritual yet non-religious understanding of our relationship to the world and one another and solving our problems. And if I could find places least disturbed by the modern world, that their perspectives would be more intact. And that is what has led me onto the, the journeys that some of the most remote and isolated and Beautiful, uh, magnificent, pristine places remaining on the earth today where this wisdom is preserved. So this is a long answer to your short question. (laughs) It's it's in those places and in the the lives of the people that preserve the wisdom that we find these elements uh, of of a deep truth that helps us to remember in the language of the best science of today uh, who we are and how we may apply the wisdom of the past to solve the greatest crises of, of human history.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue into your latest book that's coming out this week called Deep Truth. Uh, the tagline is Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate. So let's begin by asking what you mean by the title.
1: Well, the title, Deep Truth, uh, actually is reference to a statement that was made by Nobel Prize-winning physicist Niels Bohr uh, in the mid-20th century, Miriam, during a conversation he was having with, with Albert Einstein. And, you know, when I, I hear about conversations like this, I wonder if, if even the people having the conversations know when they make the statement how deep and profound the statement is that, that they've just said, that they've just made, because what, what Niels Bohr said to Albert Einstein, they were talking about the nature of truth, and in this case, uh, scientific truth. Uh, and Niels Bohr said, "It is this is a quote, he said, it is a hallmark of any deep truth that its negation also is a deep truth. So in other words, when we take something, a scientific truth that, Uh, that we have believed and that much of our understanding has been based upon for a number of of years or possibly centuries, and new discoveries tell us that that truth is no longer true, then the new discovery becomes the new deep truth. And the reason that I chose that as a title for this book is precisely because of that. We, We are, we, this generation, our time in history, our civilization are facing the greatest number of crises, and each crisis is of the greatest magnitude of 5,000 years of recorded human history. The best minds of our time are in in agreement uh, about this today. What is so significant is that many of the crises are what they are uh, because of the assumptions, the scientific assumptions that our civilization and our lives and our world uh, are based upon, for the last three hundred years or so and many of those assumptions now are being proven false Mm -hmm. by new discoveries on the one hand that's the good news but there's a reluctance in mainstream science mainstream documentaries mainstream classrooms mainstream textbooks there's a reluctance to share these new discoveries so my question as i began writing this book and the reason i wrote the book is how can we possibly solve the greatest questions of our our survival until we know the deepest truths of our existence. And how can we possibly arrive at those truths if the new discoveries are not being shared uh, in meaningful, responsible, public ways today? That's the reason I've written this book.
0: You go into um, a number of the crises that are facing us. Um, You enumerate five crisis areas uh, that are actually threatening our future. Are, you, are we already at a tipping point, do you think?
1: Well, we are. And, and I'm, I'd like to say to our listeners, uh, there was a time in my life when I had an aversion to the word crisis. I, I used to, uh, and especially when I was in the corporations, and I would come on to a project uh, such as the, uh, in, during the, the Cold War, the, uh, the Peacekeeper Missile Project was, was designed Uh, because of the the crisis the nuclear crisis between the former soviet union and, and the united states but i have changed that perspective and i now appreciate the word crisis for this reason if a crisis is still present it means we still have time to do something it means it's not over yet when the crisis is no longer existent it means that that something has already happened it may be good it may be not so good the fact that the best minds of our time these are the the scientists the religious leaders, the social architects, the engineers, the spiritual leaders, the philosophers of our, of our time are telling us uh, in, uh, in very clear terms that we are in fact facing the greatest crises of 5,000 years of recorded human history. There was an amazing edition of the journal Scientific American, a special edition, that was released in September of 2005. It's online today for people that would, would like to see this. And the title of this special edition tells the whole story. The title is Crossroads for Planet Earth. Crossroads for Planet Earth. And while many of our listeners and and our genre that we're reaching today, many of us have known for many years that Earth is at a crossroads, This, this special edition was important because it was the scientific community acknowledging in scientific terms uh, what it is that many of us have known and suspected for, for many, many years, that we are at this turning point. And this is this is where I make a distinction between destiny and fate. People say, well, where do we go from here? And they cite many of the ancient and indigenous prophecies uh, as a, a roadmap in terms of what we can expect over the next few years. What we know is this, is that when we talk about fate, we as individuals our communities, our nation, uh, our planet. We are on a trajectory right now based upon the choices that we've made in the past. And that trajectory will lead us to a very certain outcome if we do nothing to change it. The trajectory is what is carrying us into the breakdown of unsustainable ways of living and the great changes that we're seeing in the world, whether it's the, the economic collapse of global economies or whether it is the, uh, the, the crisis in terms of uh, available food and available fresh water and our ability to distribute uh, medicines and the famine that's uh, occurring in, in parts of the world right now, or other things. We know that these crises are, are, are happening right now. If we do nothing, that is our fate. Our destiny is what is available to us if we make the choices based upon new information that change that trajectory and one of the reasons this is so fascinating to me is is I think of uh, the space program a lot when we talk about these as an example when our scientists aim uh, a rocket at the moon the moon's a long ways away and if we make a, a small change in the trajectory when that rocket leaves the earth By the time it it gets into space, it translates into a huge distance. We could miss the moon altogether. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, I believe, applies in our, our lives today. It's not that we have to turn the world around 180 degrees in a heartbeat. It's that the little choices that we make in our lives every day translate into our collective answer to the crises of our time. Little choices that we make in terms of the way we grow our food or the way we think about our economy or share resources based in these assumptions of science many of them affect our lives every day the the ability to cooperate or compete for example we'll talk about that more i'm sure in this program yeah but but it's our, our ability to make these small choices that change our trajectory and take us from the darkest fate of the most frightening prophecies into uh, the depths of, of what many people believe is, is human destiny and now there's a destiny of uh, a world of peace a world of cooperation where we still have the problems but we learn to work together to address and transcend the problems uh, rather than trying to conquer nature and uh, and and have only a few, people who benefit while many others suffer from from the solutions and these are the kinds of choices that we're making on a big scale and then as we go through the program we can talk about what that means in our personal lives and, and the small choices that we make every day
0: well let's talk about the basis upon which we make our choices um, if we look at the information that we get out of the scientific community even before it has been massaged by the media it can be rather contradictory. And in fact, uh, one case in point um, is the uh, issue of global warming. Uh-huh. You had a really uh, fascinating analysis of core samples going back millenn- uh, eons uh, showing that global warming is a cyclical event. Now, the progressive community has always gotten behind this um, global warming concern and used it as the reason to put brakes on unbridled pollution and uh, the, the whole fossil fuel sure, economy. Sure. Now, how does the average person... Uh, who has not gone back and looked at core samples weigh the options weigh what we have to do next
1: sure Marion. well this is uh, i didn't know we were going to jump in right here and it's a perfect place to jump in and i am just want to be very very clear uh on my my perspective and why the facts are so important so from my perspective we definitely need to clean up our act here on planet Earth. Individuals, communities, nations, the planet. We definitely need to go green. We definitely need to find clean, sustainable ways to create the energy to live our lives. I'm not suggesting that we live primitive lifestyles, but there are uh, alternative and sustainable ways of providing the same things that we have today that don't damage the, the world that we love and cherish. And I think it's important for us to, to follow uh, the science that's leading us in that direction. So I'm I am fully on board with cleaning up our act here, well, here on the earth
0: I, I think okay. the important point here that you made in your book actually is it doesn't matter Why it's happening the fact is that it is happening well, and this, so this, it, the only way we can really address it is together
1: well this and this is the key so for listeners that may not be familiar with uh, some of the, the details we're talking about here, I'd just like to, to back up briefly and, uh, and share the fact uh, I was trained as a geologist back in the 70s. That was my, my first degree. And, uh, and I worked in the, the, uh, the geologic industry for Phillips Petroleum uh, in the 70s and in the, the uh, early 80s. And as a geologist, what I learned is that there's a record of the history of the Earth locked up into the, in the ice cores Uh, on the north and the south poles every year a new layer of ice is deposited and in that layer are are scientific clues of what was happening on earth during that year Uh, dust particles uh, pollen grains from the atmosphere the ice contains little bubbles of atmosphere of air that tell us how much carbon dioxide has been here in the past and how much methane so new new scientific methods are allowing, uh, allowing scientists to, to learn a tremendous amount about our past from each of these layers of ice. Well, in 1999, the scientists of the world recognized that climate change is a fact. They said, we don't know why, but yes, the climate change is happening. Uh, Earth is warming uh, temporarily, and in that warming, we're losing the ice that holds the record to the past. So they drilled to the bottom of the thickest ice in Antarctica. And retrieved, even the scientists were amazed at this, Miriam, they retrieved uh, over 420,000 consecutive layers of ice in the core, each layer representing one year of the history of the Earth. Suddenly, scientists had 420,000 years uh, of the history of the, uh, the past to look into and compare to today. And when I talk about this in the book, I include many of the graphs. One of the things they found is that there are obvious cycles, and there are cycles within cycles. Uh, and the fact is that global climate change is a, a, a natural rhythm uh, that Earth has demonstrated many times in the past. Uh, the warming and the cooling go in approximately 100,000-year cycles, and within that there are smaller nested cycles. Uh And linked with these cycles are high levels of carbon dioxide in the past over 420,000 years when it's believed that there wasn't a lot of human industry to cause it. So the CO2 was here, even though we weren't here. So the question, did we cause global warming? The answer is absolutely no. And that that is a fact that is borne out by the data in the records. Global warming has happened with or without large human populations. Did we contribute? to the global warming? I think the answer is probably that we have. There's a good possibility. I mean, we're we're kicking particulates into the atmosphere. We're obviously contributing to something. Mm-hmm. But where this gets really interesting, and, and the only reason to even bring this up, we all saw the, the Copenhagen Climate Summit of 2010, where the, the hopes were so high that the the leaders of the world would work together to address climate change based on the false assumptions of the science, the false assumption saying that we caused, that humans caused the climate change. The result was that there was uh, a a blame that was placed on some nations contributing more of the the climate change than others, and trying to assign a a monetary penalty, trying to financially make those nations uh, responsible, and the ultimate uh, outcome in the breakdown was that the assumptions made in the false science caused such hard feelings among the leaders of the nations and their committees that became very difficult to cooperate and work together when everyone is blaming one another mm-hmm. for, uh, for for what has happened.
0: It's like children so, in the schoolyard.
1: Well, it is, and and from my perspective, and I'm, I'm the book is based in fact, and when I deviate from the fact, I, I have to say that. So, what I'm about to share is is my personal sense. Uh, I was in Europe uh, on a tour when this climate summit was happening, and and I knew people that were participating and uh, had some feedback from those people. And so my sense is this. What could have happened is this, is the following. The leaders, it was a rare uh, opportunity because the actual leaders of the nations were present. And it was an opportunity for them to come together and look at one another in the eye and say, this crisis is a reason for us to put our differences in the past behind us. Climate change is happening. It's a fact. We don't know why. That's a fact, for sure. But we can work together uh, to adapt to climate change. We cannot stop it, but we can work to adapt to the climate change and help the people who are losing their lives. Entire communities are being wiped away from seashore, uh, seashores and, and superstorms and communities and indigenous people that are losing their way of life. It's affecting all of us. We can work together to transcend this great crisis together and create better nations and become a better world in this cooperation. That's what could have happened. What did happen was the belief that, this, based on, on false science, that, uh, that climate change is human-induced, and because of that false thinking, Going after the nations that they believe had more of a role in inducing the climate change, uh, caused as I mentioned before, caused such hard feelings. It became very difficult. Um, the summit went away after the week, or the, it ended. The participants went away with very little uh, in terms of any agreements. Now there is uh, uh, the hope of another climate summit where many of the principles that we are talking about right now will be in place, and new leaders will have the opportunity to to come together in what I would see as as an unprecedented act of of cooperation. But this is one example. People ask all the time, okay, you know, Greg, it's false science. How does it affect us today? This is a beautiful example of where the assumptions, false assumptions made on uh, scientific data have led to the breakdown in the cooperation in one of the, the greatest crises that faces the entire planet today. Mm -hmm. And it's only one example of of where this is happening. The economic system isn't another another example.
0: My goodness. Uh, We'll get more deeply into that in a moment, but we need to take a short break now, and then we'll be right back with Greg Braden. Got an extra 30 seconds? That's all it takes to unlock the power of your birthday and unleash your true potential. Visit www.birthdaycode.com and find out what's hidden in your birth date. Now from the publishers of The Secret comes The Code, a simple guide to unlocking your true potential. Visit birthdaycode.com to learn more why hide your true talents. You are listening to New Consciousness Review. You can learn more about Miriam Knight's guests by visiting the NCR online showcase of Conscious Media, where you'll find thousands of spiritual and progressive titles of authors and filmmakers. And now let's get back to
1: Miriam and her guest.
0: And we're back with our guest, Greg Braden, discussing his book, Deep Truth. Greg, before the break, we were talking about the... Uh, lack of cooperation, this kind of feeling of separation and blame game, uh, from the climate change summit. Um, you talk about the Darwinian theory of survival of the fittest and how it plays out in society today. Uh, can, can you expand on that? Because I think it's relevant to what we were discussing.
1: Precisely, Mary. We're on the same page, and uh, that was—I had just made a note. When we come back from our break, I wanted to to address precisely this, uh, because we've just given an example through climate change of how uh, a false assumption based on a scientific belief can lead to a breakdown in in cooperation, uh, and it is that cooperation and the lack of of cooperation that is actually impeding us from solving many of the crises that that, uh, our world is seeing today. So we're going to go back uh, to 1859. And in 1859, Charles Darwin released uh, the first book uh, in a series that that he was to write um, regarding human origins and our relationship to the world and the way that we work together. And this book was important because until 1859, the topics that Darwin was addressing were largely uh, uh, answered, the questions were largely answered only by the religious and the spiritual community up until this time. Where do humans come from? Where, where do, uh, how did life begin? Um, how do we work together? What does it mean to be here in, in this world? So 1859, in Darwin's book, this was the first attempt uh, to scientifically address these issues, and because it was seen as a scientific paper, the conclusions that Darwin reached were embraced widely in the, the modern world. What was the modern world in 1859? Uh, the title of the book, I know many of our listeners are familiar with, was called the, the original title called The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. And that's the title that we see on the book today. There was the remainder of the title, however, that is now on the inside cover. It's not emphasized. And it is a, it's a a—it's a powerful insight, uh, I believe, into Darwin's thinking uh, and, and the thinking of his time in history. The rest of the title, so the original title, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, the rest of the title, or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And what Darwin was sharing were his observations that he made as a scientist for some forms of life in some parts of the world. Uh, And I I think Darwin was probably a good scientist, and I think he did a good job making the observations. In my opinion, where Darwin made a mistake is he tried to take the observations he made for a few forms of life in some parts of the world. In this case, he was in the Galapagos Islands. Uh, the, The observations he made there, he tried to take those observations and generalize them to all life, including human life. So when he did that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and he published this as a scientific paper, the modern world in 1859 embraced Darwin's ideas, and they carried over into the 20th and now the early 21st century. Many of the crises that we are experiencing today are based in a way of thinking that is traced directly back to Charles Darwin's book, uh, survival of, uh, uh, or the origin of species. One of the key assumptions that Darwin made was regarding what was called survival of the fittest, which is often interpreted as survival of the strongest. And what he said was, in in essence, he looked at the insect and the animal kingdom, uh, and he said, when we see an ant making a slave of another ant, or we see uh, a bird that has a foster nest mate, and they, they kick them out of the nest because they're not one of their own. He said, these are small examples in nature of a general law that applies to all life, and that is multiply, vary, let the strongest live and the weakest die. Let the strongest live and the weakest die. That's, that's a direct quote from Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. So people ask me again, Greg, I understand what you're saying. What consequence could that possibly have? in our lives today and the answer is it is a huge consequence because since 1859 the civilization that we live in today and much of the thinking in our communities our nations our laws are based in a way of thinking that is directly traced back to 1859 Let the strongest live and the weakest die this is the basis for the way corporations are formed this is the, the basis for the global economy that, that uh, is collapsing uh, around us right now.
0: And, and it, starts, it starts in the schools, in the, the whole educational system.
1: Well, it, it's a basis for a, a way of, of thinking. And yeah. uh, what we know right now, I know for many people, including my little four-foot-eight-inch-tall mom, <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, when I talk to her about the world today, she just says, you know, things are falling apart uh, at the seams for, for no apparent reason. And it's easy to think that way, but if we look closely, however, Miriam, what we find is that the only things in the world that are breaking down and falling apart are the ways of life that are no longer sustainable. And much of the the ways of life that are no longer sustainable are based in these false assumptions of science, and the idea of survival of the fittest is, is one of the keys. This is at the very core of the global economic system that's collapsing as we have this interview right now. We know that this is a false assumption, because in the, uh, uh, in the late 20th century, over 400 peer-reviewed studies asked a single question, and they all came up with the same answer. And The question was simply this, what is the optimum amount of competition in any environment, in the workplace, in the classroom, in the community, between nations? And when we talk about competition, this isn't a friendly game of, of chess or soccer. This is, this is violent competition. What is the optimum amount of competition? All 400 studies came back with the same number, and what they said was zero, zero competition. They said competition is always, always, always destructive for the individual, for the community, uh, for the, the group or the nations uh, at large, that nature rather than being based in a model of co- uh, competition is actually based in a model of what is called cooperation and mutual aid. And while competition may occur because of extreme conditions uh, from time to time, that it is not the basis for, for the way that nature works. Nature is actually based upon a model of cooperation and mutual aid. Now, this is, is a, a powerful Uh, understanding it's a powerful statement to make because as the familiar world of our past is collapsing and we now in a very brief period of time must find solutions to address our energy concerns to address uh, the way that we share uh, depleting resources uh, the disappearance of of fresh water in the world and uh, the inability to grow as much food as we have in the past how we share resources how we share uh, medicine, how we share technology, the way we think of security and defense, uh, our economic system, all of these things, as different as they are from one another, they're all based in the way we think of ourselves and our relationship to others. And for over 150 years, consciously or subconsciously, we have believed that it is based upon survival of the strongest. And if we can make this shift As we make the shift, because I'm already seeing it happen. It's happening by necessity. As we make this shift from survival of the strongest to mutual aid and cooperation, what we're finding is that we're better as individuals. We're better people. We have stronger communities. And I believe that when we complete the transition that the world is now experiencing, we're going to have a better world. The crises are forcing us to think differently. But once we embrace the new thinking, based in the new scientific discoveries and new scientific facts, the deep truths of our time, uh, then I think we will continue these new ways of working together, even though the crises are no longer present. And in that way, um, for our listeners who are familiar with some of our most cherished and indigenous spiritual uh, and and ancient uh, uh, prophecies, we will have fulfilled the, the dawn of, of a new world of peace or a new golden age. And I think that's precisely where, where we're headed.
0: This is probably a good place to talk about the the cycles of civilization the, the, uh, that you describe, um, kind of linking them into the Mayan calendar and these 5,000-something-or-other-year cycles mm-hmm. and how humanity actually has a much more ancient Um, history of civilization than we've acknowledged.
1: Absolutely, Miriam, and this all goes back the the theme through this book, Deep Truth, is that new discoveries are changing the way that we have been led to think about ourselves in the past, uh, for over 300 years, uh, since the birth of science. The new discoveries are there, the science is there, it's not making it into the mainstream for a lot of reasons, uh, a lot of different reasons. And as we embrace, so we just talked about cooperation versus competition. That is only one of the deep truths, and and we can see how important that is. Another one of the deep truths is the fact that when I was in school, when you were in school, when most of our listeners were in school, we were taught that civilization is only about five thousand years old. That it has happened essentially one time in a linear fashion and developed from. Uh, 5,000 years ago during the time of ancient Sumeria and Mesopotamia, from that time to the pinnacle of the sophistication that we see in today. We're, we're led to believe it's linear. Uh, happened one time 5,000 years ago. The problem is that the data, the facts, no longer support this belief, but the new facts are not being carried in the classrooms, the textbooks, in the, in the mainstream science and the media. Archaeological discoveries based in accepted scientific methods and published in peer-reviewed journals. So this isn't speculation. Uh, They are showing uh, evidence of advanced civilizations dating back at least into the end of the last ice age. That is over two times as old as what we've been led to believe. The ice age ended about 12,000 years ago. And right now the oldest of the the documented sites is 13,500 years old. This is a site called Gobekli Tepe, uh, that is located in Turkey. And if it were only one site, we could call it an anomaly. But what is happening now is that there are so many archaeological sites in so many different parts of the world that are now pushing the date for advanced civilizations with architecture and astronomy and mathematics and agriculture. They're pushing them back near the end or into the end of the last ice age. Uh, that the anomalies are beginning to tell a new story. And when we overlay a map of these discoveries onto a map of cycles of time, what we see is something very interesting. Uh, Our indigenous ancestors tell us about cycles of time based on Earth's location in space. And every 5,000 years or so, approximately every 5,000 years, Earth's location changes the the tilt, the angle, the wobble of earth in relation to the sun. Uh, I don't want it to sound technical. It's actually very intuitive. Uh, When we change our relationship to the sun, uh, it changes climate. It changes our ability to grow our food. And when those things change, it changes the way we live. And that happens on a rhythmic basis about every 5,000 years. So our ancestors knew that, and they have done their very best to tell us the Western world discounted those traditions until recently when our own science confirmed what our ancestors told us. So we are living the last years of a rare, mysterious cycle that began about 5,125 years ago. Uh, It began on August 11th, 3114 B.C., and it ends on a date that's on everyone's mind right now, the winter solstice, December 21st of 2012. That is why 2012 is such a big deal in the Mayan calendar. It ends one of those five thousand year cycles and it is called a great world age what our ancestors told us is there have been at least four great world ages in the past so we are living the last year's of the fifth and moving into a sixth great world age so Marion, the reason i'm sharing this when we map world age cycles over uh the timeline for the discoveries of ancient civilization what we find is that everything that we think of is the history of our world not the history of the whole world forever it's the history only of our most recent cycle of civilization and the new discoveries into the last ice age those are the cycle before this one the cycle that our western historians have been reluctant to acknowledge but that our ancestors indigenous people all over the world have always told us exist so why is this important for a very good reason it means that the crises of climate and climate change and how we grow our food and how we work together that we're only beginning to acknowledge and embrace now it means that humans have lived through them in the past and if we have the wisdom to learn from our past we can apply the lessons of our ancestors and maybe avoid some of their pitfalls and mistakes or embrace some of the things that they did that make a lot of sense we can embrace those as we address these these crises today. And this it ties back into the previous conversation. What we find is that the the archaeological sites of the past, from 5,000 years ago to 13,000 years ago, they're very different from one another, but there's a common theme that's very, very significant here. And that is that before 5,000 years ago, we see no scientific evidence of large-scale war Mm -hmm. we see no evidence of uh the cities and the homes needing to defend themselves from war we see no walls built around the cities no moats that are built uh, around the homes we see no evidence of weapons that are found in the uh, the archaeological debris no mass graves no mutilated bodies that you would see from uh from large-scale war all of that begins Interestingly, at the beginning of this current cycle that is ending in next year, in 2012. And our ancestors have told us this. The indigenous people have told us that we are living what they call a dark cycle, characterized by war and suffering, but that the cycle before this was a golden age, and that we have the opportunity to leave the darkness and the suffering behind based upon the choices we're making now in the the face of the crises. How we solve the crises can lead us into the next cycle of peace, uh, longevity, and, and the next golden age. And so for me, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to look at our past. Are these sites ancient? Absolutely. Are they obsolete? Absolutely not. There's a continuity in human experience if we have the wisdom to recognize the cycles and the nature of the cycles in our lives. And uh, in that way, we can learn from our past. And, uh, and that gives us the edge, the evolutionary edge, to tip the scales of peace and life in our favor as we go through the changes.
0: Well, it's interesting to contemplate this notion of the past because our society is so focused on the short term. And uh, we're... we're uh, notorious for thinking about the good old days. You had a wonderful quote in your book. Well, it's a quote from you. You said, "We can't." <laughs> I said
1: something wonderful in my book?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you said, We can't go back to the familiar world of our past. We're a one-way trip. We can't go back to the world of the past because it no longer exists. It transformed before our eyes while we were living the change in plain sight and i think if we need to take on board one message it's that we have to look forward we have to we have to accept the situation as it is and figure out how to make it better going forward and this is what you're you're calling for it's making these wise choices
1: it is Miriam, And, you know i'm i am less than 24 hours uh, on this call i'm less than 24 hours from coming back to the states from uh, a lengthy tour in in western europe and listening uh to the perspective of uh our extended global family uh in europe and, and in those seminars uh, people came from throughout the world to be with us they came from asia uh and south america and africa and um, uh, uh and the united states as well and canada to to participate in the seminars to understand about these deep truths And I think one of the most difficult things for everyone uh, is simply this. And I I have this conversation with my little mom as well. Uh, I I think many of our listeners probably are familiar with the movie The Bucket List Mm -hmm. with uh, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson who face uh, the realization that their lives are about to end and they haven't done everything they'd like to do. And they make a list of what those things are and they do their best to help each other fulfill them in, in the last year of their lives. I saw that movie and I asked my little mom, I said, Do you have a bucket list? And she said, Yes. And she shared it with me and I said, Let's start right now. And she said, No. <laughs> and I said, Why not? She said, Let's wait till things settle down. And I said, well, What do you mean? She says, Well, let's wait till things get back to normal. And I said, What is normal to you? And she said, You know, the way the world was 10 years ago. And for our listeners today, for our friends that were in the seminars uh, in Europe, uh, and for my mom, I think one of the hardest things for us to really embrace is the fact that that world is gone. The world my mom is waiting to uh, to appear before she begins her bucket list no longer exists. And And when we really embrace the fact that the world that we have grown to trust and that we have mastered to some degree... Here's the key, that world was never meant as the destination. It was never meant uh, to last forever. It was designed as a stepping stone to get us to the next level. It was designed as as a bridge between the world of the 1800s and covered wagons uh, and the technology that, that now has become possible. So for those that are struggling to regain and recreate and rebuild the things that are now disappearing. For those people, I think they're having a tough time right now Mm. um, for these very reasons. And if they can embrace without judgment, and this is the other piece, Miriam, if we can look at our world of the past without judging our choices, uh, I'm not saying that we, we have made no mistakes, but if we can think of them more as a learning curve, we're on this vast learning curve where we had to experience what we don't like before we say we don't like it and we're not going to do it anymore. And I think this is where we've all been. If we can say the world of the past worked so well that it got us to where we are today and now we can let it go and embrace the new possibilities rather than trying to recreate the old, I think that is the key to the transformation. We don't want to just survive. The change we we're we're hoping to transcend, the change and and it is the crises of the world that become the doorway for the the new sustainable ways of living. Uh, Just uh, can I give one more example in the economic system, Mm -hmm. so people can really embrace this? I I was working in the 1980s for Phillips Petroleum. Um, I think I can say that on the air and and at that time. There was an effort, uh, and we were seeing this happening with a lot of corporations. There were a group of people that were called corporate raiders. And what they would do is they would go in to a successful corporation. In this case, it was a Fortune 500 company, Phil's Petroleum. And they would try to break that company up into smaller pieces, sell it off, uh, destroying the company, destroying the lives and the jobs of those who are working, but making money for the shareholders. This is... A result of a way of thinking, uh, survival of the strongest it was it wasn 't about the people it was about uh, it was about the money and those that were strong enough to fight off uh, the, uh, the the corporate raiders uh, were able to do so successfully, although in the case of phillips they they used so many resources there wasn 't much of a company left when um, you know when it was finished, but that kind of thinking. That is uh, survival of the fittest. Uh, everyone is out for themselves. That is, and this is just one example of a kind of thinking that many of us were led to embrace. Uh, we're taught when we're young people. The media supports this, and the movies, and uh, uh, much of the way of thinking. Our policies of war and peace, when we choose to take a human life and when we choose to spare a human life, are based in in these ideas. So we have a century of that thinking and we know of the war and the suffering and the hardship that it has led to in my experience is the people of the world the people of the world are ready for much more than the war and suffering of the last 100 years and there is this rare and in my view precious this precious opening right now where people are ready to embrace a new way of living their lives as individuals and as communities hopefully as nations, and this is the opportunity that we're being invited to step through in this little window of time uh, at the close of this great world age. And if we can embrace the deep truths, the new science that's giving us the facts, the reasons to change the way we think of ourselves and our relationship to one another in the world, then, then we have the reasons uh, to do so responsibly so we're not just leaping at a new idea, we've got the basis, the scientific basis that tells us where our thinking in the past uh, was in error and what the new discoveries are showing us now. And it's these deep truths uh, that tell us about ourselves and our relationship to the past that I believe lay the foundation and open the doorway to a, a brand new world and that is precisely the reason that I'm so passionate about sharing this book.
0: Well, I I think there's another point um, that you made so eloquently in your book, The Divine Matrix, which is uh, the fact of our connection to each other as opposed to our separation. Once we can identify ourselves as connected, it puts a whole new perspective on the whole area of competition.
1: Well, it does. And one of the false assumptions of, of science is that we are separate from our world. And that that what happens inside of our bodies, the thoughts, feelings, emotions, and beliefs within our bodies have little or no effect uh, in the world beyond our bodies. And our own science now is telling us that absolutely is not true. Uh, That when we create, when we choose uh, with the power of the human heart, the human heart is the strongest organ in the body for electrical fields and magnetic fields in the human body. The human heart is, is 100 times stronger than the brain electrically, but 5,000 times stronger than the brain magnetically. This is important because it is the magnetic field of the earth that connects all hearts uh, of all humans and all life. And it's the magnetic fields uh, of the quality of those fields that uh, uh, gives us the opportunity to tip the scales of life and balance uh, and peace in our favor. Because when we claim the experience that is called coherence, in our hearts as individuals. Our own science now is showing us, and the satellite data is confirming, that the coherence of a relatively few individuals is actually experienced uh, and affects the fields on a global basis. We saw this over September 11th, when two satellites over North America uh, that send back the data every 30 minutes tell us how strong the magnetic fields of the Earth really are. Uh, of September 11th, there was a a huge spike in the fields. Mm -hmm. And scientists correlated that to the outpouring of emotion from humans, all heart-based emotion, all over the world, uh, in response to what they were seeing on their televisions in 9-11. It was the first time scientists found that human emotion is actually linked powerfully and can influence uh, the the very fields of the Earth that connect and sustain all life. Now that we know that... Now that we know that, we know that it doesn't take a tragedy to bring us together and that we can choose to move into our hearts and create this coherent field uh, for cooperation and peace in our world.
0: Well, as they say, from your lips to God's ear. Um, (laughs) Greg, (laughs) tell us about um, how to find out more about you and your work, your books. What's your website?
1: Well, my website is uh, it's gregbraden.com, G-R-E-G-G-B-R-A-D-E-N.com. And uh, on the website, uh, there are schedules for all of our, our live seminars throughout the world. Um, all of the the media that's been created around this material and, and all the material that's led up to this uh, for the last 25 years is available uh, through those websites as well. And, Miriam, I know we're, we're running out of time. I just want to take a moment. I, I just want to share with our listeners... Uh, how fortunate they are to have media like you and what you're creating here, clear conscious media, uh, and the programs, the kind of programs that you and, and others are creating, because we don't have this everywhere in the world, and I'm in a lot of communities that don't. But it's through these conversations that we're able to share this kind of information and, and the relevance and the, uh, in a meaningful way in, in our lives. So I want to thank you for your vision and your dedication uh, to make this possible and uh, just let our listeners know how really, really lucky we all are to have this kind of media available here in in our own backyards.
0: Thank you so much, Greg. That's uh, very encouraging. So we're going to wrap up our show today, and we have been speaking with Greg Braden about his new book, Deep truth it has a wonderful vision for humanity please get it you can find it on our website ncreview.com as well as on greg's website com. and all i can do is hope that you take his words to heart greg bless you for your work thank you for being with us
1: oh marion thank you for a beautiful program take good care and uh, i look forward to the next time
0: you bet Bye.